This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Um, Hi, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Not a problem. Happy to be here. Okay, so my first question for you is, um, how did you get into law, and how did you get into cannabis law? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I grew up in in northern Alberta, kind of during the boom times, and and when that was happening, there was a real big emphasis on on kind of trades and uh, things of that nature, especially in and around the oil patch, and it was we we grew up and I had been involved in it kind of in high school and throughout and realized it really wasn't for me. I was not nearly as handy as the rest of my friends. Uh, I figured university offered a pretty good uh, escape and and uh, route to go and end up doing a, a BA in psychology. And I thought I was going to be a psychologist until I started doing some of that and realized that wasn't for me either. Uh, and then so decided to else can you do with a BA in psychology? And if you don't want to be a psychologist, you're probably going to end up going to law school. And so I ended up writing the LSAT kind of on a whim and, and ended up doing fairly well and, and ended up there. And uh, after that, I ended up articling at, at Blake's, which was great and, and really went head first back into oiling, oiling gas. And then that's because I graduated in, in 2015 there. And that's when oil has started to tank as well and ended up doing a lot of restructuring and insolvency work in and around the the calgary market there and so did that for about two two and a half years and had a really interesting opportunity come up um where one of my colleagues or previous colleagues had actually gone in-house to a large licensed producer i think she was like the fourth employee there a very large household name and uh she was she had a mat leave that she needed to cover it and and essentially reached out to some of the people that she worked for and asked, hey, does anyone want to come to this small town um, <laughs> for the mat leave for, for a bit? And I said, I stuck my hand up and said, absolutely. It'd be, it'd be a really interesting opportunity. I ended up doing that for about three months, which was really cool. And then I, that kind of coincided with uh, 2017 and the year that, I guess 2017, 2018, when, when legalization had just been announced and, and a lot of there's a lot of money being spent and a lot of uh, attention being paid to the cannabis industry in general and people started wanting to do deals and it just kind of naturally from there the restructuring started to be less and less and the cannabis started to be more and more and it, it was really all to do with that um, that once economy which just it was just came out of nowhere no expectation and it, and it led to a really interesting kind of career change for me yeah so you know the industry obviously is still very new still growing but what does it actually mean to be a cannabis law lawyer <laughs> that's that's a really good question um, and, and a lot of the time it's, it's, there, there's kind of different aspects and there's different people on different sides of it. And I mean, there are, there are people who do work for cannabis companies and then there are what I would say the people who do specifically kind of cannabis regulatory stuff. And so I would say that the vast majority of people do work for cannabis companies and have the cannabis companies as clients. And I mean, they need the same services as everybody else. They need like securities governance, they, they like capital markets help uh, as well as they're buying and selling all sorts of stuff. And, and a lot of it might be, be cannabis related, but a lot of it might be just general equipment, real estate, things of that nature. And then you get onto the, the cannabis regulatory side of things, which, which I I'd probably do about half of my practice is, is just regulatorily based. And then the rest I would say is transactional, but that's more focused on the actual specifics of what are the cannabis act and uh, the federal cannabis act and the provincial regulations say regarding kind of specific things. And a lot of that comes up on the licensing front 
So how do you get a cannabis license? How do you maintain a cannabis license? And how do you kind of comply with all that as well as the very specific requirements that relate to like products and product manufacturing and production. And there's a lot of overlap with food and drug regulatory requirements and all sorts of things like that. So it is truly kind of a regulatory piece of uh, regulatory practice on that side of things. Um, and, you know, the answer to this question is always there's no typical day, but what does a <laughs> hypothetically typical day look like for you? Well, I was actually uh, joking with my partner the other day about this. And when she was looking at the at my calendar and saying, oh, it's it's wide open this week. You got nothing scheduled. And I was like, well, yes, that's because I, I sit down in a day and all of a sudden there's a flood of requests uh, coming in to, to talk or emails coming in. And, and so it really, truly is there is no typical day. Um, I'm very, very lucky if I manage to schedule a week out at, at a time. It's, it's usually people calling in with specific questions on specific issues or agreements with very tight turnarounds and stuff like that. And so the, the plus side of that is it's, it's really interesting and really exciting because you're always kind of in live issues and you need to address them. The downside of that is it makes planning <laughs> a little bit more difficult because um, it, it really is in a lot of cases, especially um, depending on, on who the clients are and the problems that they're dealing with. Like a lot of it is kind of a crisis response. And so for a good example, that would be product liability concerns and recall concerns and, and things of that nature. Or somebody's kind of breached an existing supply agreement or, or all sorts of things on that front. And then on the commercial side of things, it's really just kind of. How do we how do we create this new type of agreement that may or may not exist <laughs> uh, to kind of capture the realities? Because it, it is a bit of a unique. It's it's not completely different, but it is a bit unique. So it's not just agriculture, and it's not just um, kind of general CPG products. There's a whole host of kind of new and unique issues that you need to address. So when you're working with other lawyers, are you working with them within Ontario, or is it sort of across? Canada and similar with same with your clients. I mean, are they mostly based in Ontario or are there are you kind of kind of advising them on Ontario law um, when they're outside of Ontario? Uh, it, it's it's a huge mix. And so, so I'm, I'm called in Alberta and um, Ontario. And so a, a good chunk of it happens in those two provinces. BC is also a big one. I've so far managed to keep it just under the the amount of days for BC that you need to practice without uh, having to get called there, which would be great because that's just more CBD to deal with. Um, but but I would say like we we have a national team in, in specifically the firm that I work in and that helps because we have people in each of the different offices and I work and kind of support them um, as that goes on. Obviously, you help the clients with what you can in the, in the provinces in, in which they're located. So I mean, the the, the way things developed, especially in 2018, right, 2017 and 2018, the, a large number I would say the majority of the industry is really based in Ontario and specifically southern Ontario. Um, given just that's where a lot of the greenhouses were set up and, and things of that nature as well. But there, there's a huge diversity. There's people in, in the, the Atlantic provinces and Newfoundland and Quebec, a big, big presence in Quebec. It's getting bigger. Uh, and, and I mean, all across the prairies and, and the, the West Coast as well. And so it, it's just you'd be surprised where things pop up. OK, so, you know, it's now been sort of three years since the legalization of cannabis. And I'm sure there's still a lot of ground to cover in terms of regulation. Um, we can come back to that later. But for now, um, what exactly is being regulated by the current statute, both federally and provincially in Ontario? Uh, pretty much everything. So, so I mean, the way the Cannabis Act works is that it, it governs the kind of the production and distribution and sale of cannabis, kind of all medical cannabis, and then all recreational cannabis up into the point of sale into the, the various different provinces. So all your all the promotional, well, not all of them, but the majority, the baseline promotional prohibitions are set out in the Federal Cannabis Act. 
um, everything to do with like cannabis production realistically is set out in, in the act. And then everything to do with medical sale is also set out in the act. And then when it comes to the sale of recreational cannabis, everything up to the point where the, the major producers are selling finished product um, into the provinces is, is governed by the federal act. And then the prov provincial act takes over or the territorial act takes over from that point. And, and that's typically the point where the, the licensed producers are selling to like the, the Ontario cannabis store. And as soon as that transaction kind of happens, uh, everything you're dealing with stuff on, under kind of Ontario legislation and, and type of the Cannabis Control Act 2017, the Cannabis Licensing Act 2018, that sort of thing. So if every province has slightly different laws, um, what do people have to think about when, you know, when things start opening up, when you can travel <laughs> across provinces? But what do they have to think about when they're traveling across provinces in terms of possession? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, that's a good question because the, the federal act does set out certain requirements. So, so essentially limits on like 30 grams of, of dried flour equivalent that you can have in public, which is the big one. Um, but each, you're right, each province and, and territory has its own different requirements. And it, it's not so much what you can kind of have on your possession, but I mean, for example, some provinces prohibit the sale of certain type of products. Um, and whether that's kind of high potency vapes or, or other things of that nature or, or certain flavors and things. And you just want to be careful about making sure you're buying from a legal source if those are available in certain provinces. The other side of things is it's not so much the possession, but with the consumption rules are very different. Um, and Ontario, for example, is some of the most liberal consumption rules in, in the country when it comes to where you, you can use cannabis. And, and those aren't reflected or, or, or they're, they're not the same kind of across the majority of other provinces. In fact, some of them are, are quite strict about where you can consume it. And in, in many cases, it's actually limited to your own property, whereas it's, it's much more open in Ontario. You alluded to making sure that you're buying from a legal source. Is there still a big sort of underground black market for cannabis? Absolutely. And, and so, I mean, there's, there's still a number of reports that are being published where the indicating, I can't remember what the exact percentage is, but, but the majority of cannabis transactions are still occurring on an illegal basis. The There has been a significant clampdown, even compared to a year ago, on um, uh, kind of physical brick and mortar illicit dispensaries. Uh, there's been a real push to kind of close those down. There's still an enormous number of illegal online dispensaries, which are much harder to track down because it's really tricky. and some of them are, are really quite sophisticated and to the point where I get calls from, from other professionals who are looking to confirm that somebody wants their services is in fact a, a legal dispensary or illegal because it's, it's so hard for them to tell. In many cases, it's, it's not easy. And there are public listings of um, licensed retail stores, which are available online. But the challenge with that is that, and, and it's just likewise on, on with federal licensees, but the challenge is, is the name of the, the company doesn't always line up with the, the name of the entity that holds the license. A lot of them are held in number codes or other things like that, which can make kind of tracking it down quite difficult. So what is statute or the government's, what are they trying to do to kind of mitigate underground markets? Well, we've seen quite an uptick in enforcement, specifically on the, the retail side of things. There's, there's been a number of, especially in Ontario, you've, there's probably seen in the news, there's been a number of uh, busts of, of what they consider to be illicit grow operations, um, seizures of um, plants and other things like that that are occurring on, on quite a regular basis. There was a big push to shut down a lot of the unlicensed dispensaries in, in Toronto um, that's occurred kind of over the last couple of years. Those are the kind of the easier targets. 
again, it's it's a lot harder to figure out, what, especially if the website's not easily traced and, and figuring out where some of these products are coming from, because a lot of them are able to use, they, they, they replicate um, legal licensed producers very similarly. And so it, a lot of them might be delivered by major carriers. Uh, the major carriers might not have even been, they might not be aware, right? Because if, if you're engaged in that activity, they, they may or may not have provided accurate documents, right? And so it can be really challenging. And if it shows up by the same way your other mail shows up, it, it really it involves a much more involved investigation. And then I know I know those are happening and they are occurring, but it's, it's going to be kind of a slow process to chase some of those down. And what are some of the reasons that people are still turning to underground markets over legal sources? Uh, I, I think price is a big one. The, so so there's there. Price is a big one. Product restrictions is another big one. Um, so there are specific restrictions, especially when it comes around edibles, about the the potency, and especially for people who are relying on those for for medical purposes. There, the, the common complaint that we've heard is that they don't provide enough of the dose and it's not economical, and so they continue to rely on some of their their um, unlicensed sources for for that purpose. Uh, and then the other side of things is because they're not going through the same level of quality assurance and other things like that. It's, it's easier for them to produce at a reduced cost. And in many cases, there, there's no markup. So, so for example, when a licensed producer produces a product, it grows it at, at effectively its cost as, adds a margin that's then sold to an, a distributor, which adds its margin. And that's then sold to a retailer, which adds its margin. And so you've got several different middlemen in the middle there that are that are kind of adding cost to it. Whereas if it's uh, somebody who's just growing it um, unlicensed they're, and they're not going through the, the quality process that drives up the cost and they're not dealing with the other markup, they're able to deliver it at a, a, a lower cost. But I mean, we've seen several licensed producers kind of specifically trying to address this and gain some of that market share by reduced reduce, or offering additional products at lower price points, but it, it can be challenging for them just given the way that the current regulatory framework and, and tax framework are set up. So you kind of already um, preempted my next question, but what is the supply chain now for it? Like, what does it look like for cannabis and how has that sort of changed, I guess, with legalization? So, so that, that's a good question. And so, I mean, prior to the, the Cannabis Act, there really only was a, a, a medical chain, right? And at that point, or a medical supply chain, and that really just involved specific licensed producers uh, producing cannabis, essentially finishing the products themselves, and then selling to licensed patients or registered patients. And those patients had to go through a uh, a medical clinic, essentially get an authorization from a healthcare provider. They would then fax that to the licensed producer, and then the medical patient could order that product either online or over the phone from the licensed producer, which would be delivered through the mail. There wasn't really an, op an option for storefronts or anything like that. And I mean, to be fair, there still isn't. Uh, that has been kind of blown open with, with the Cannabis Act because it's effectively still the same when it comes to medical cannabis. There are some um, opportunities, which frankly, I'm not sure have been taken advantage of just because they're, they're pretty discreet, but for, for kind of hospital pharmacies and, and healthcare practitioners to actually administer cannabis in a hospital setting, um, there's a number, number of hoops that they have to jump through on a regulatory standpoint, but that's, that's really kind of stayed the same. And then on the recreational side of things, it, it really depends on which province you're talking about. And so for the most of the provinces, um, with private retail, it's it's exactly like I described it, where the LP sells to the OCS and the OCS sells to the retailer and the retailer sells to the customer. 
some provinces like Quebec, um, the, the LP just sells to the SQDC and there's no private retailers and that's the last step before it goes to the customers. And then in a few other provinces, or I guess it, there's the OCS or equivalent would still be there, but the transaction kind of happens directly with the retailers and they just add a margin, but don't actually touch it. And then Saskatchewan, uh, the, the, there isn't really a distributor and the, that allows uh, LPs to transact directly with the retailers. So it's, it's completely different depending on which province you're talking about. Um, so in 2019, Ben & Jerry's announced that they wanted to release a cannabis ice cream flavor um, as soon as sort of the U.S. legalizes marijuana federally. That was their sort of promise. Um, has there, like, have you seen this kind of excitement from Canadian-based companies? Like, is there an appetite from sort of non-cannabis related companies to enter into the cannabis space? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think... That, that's an interesting one because there, there there's some real challenges with the U.S. And, and I'm sure you have some questions about that later as well. Um, but, but in Canada, there's all sorts of people in ancillary industries, specifically kind of consumer packaged goods that are interested to see how um, their products can can be combined with with either hemp or, or cannabis ac- extracts to to essentially gain more market share. And I think the challenge in Canada compared to the way that the U.S. framework is set up is that distribution of those products is is really limited um, by the various different provincial frameworks and, and so I mean if it's if it's considered to be cannabis the only place that you can sell it is at, at a licensed cannabis store through the OCS right and so if we use the Ben and Jerry's example that can be a real challenge um, f- for somebody who's used to being selling their products in, in supermarkets and having that be the primary point uh, of entry that, that can be really really quite difficult because then now you have to convince the retailers that they should give up like shelf space in their store to buy ice cream so that they can see that it moves through versus other products that that take up uh, or have a lower shelf space footprint that they can use to maximize revenue and so the the challenge in canada is really focused around kind of the 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 sales pathways and and that's kind of limited the ability of some of the the more creative opportunities to to really flourish over the last couple years but we're 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 seeing progress but it's, it's slow Right. Um, has the has uh, Canada looked to sort of U.S. statute in terms of sort of influence in creating their own statutes and frameworks for cannabis? Yeah. So there, there was definitely some consideration of the way Colorado and Oregon rolled out their um, Oregon or Washington. I can't remember which one uh, rolled out their rolled out their legislation and some of the effects that it had. And that was that was contemplated in some of the consultation documents. And that the, the mess, the overarching message that they got from that is that it's, it's easier to start strict <laughs> and relax it from there. Uh, and, and I mean, they, they say as much as that in the documents and that's where, where it's start low and go slow comes from, right? Which is um, not only from a consumption standpoint, but, but from a regulatory is like, let's figure out what works. Let's figure out what's a problem, what's a hindrance and then address it. And I think some of those things that they're discovering are hindrance are going to be uh, consider there's a statutory consultation that's going to start up here in, in I think it's October of this year and that was mandated by the Cannabis Act when it came in and they're going to look at the operation and things that they can change to make efficiencies and all sorts of stuff on that end. So my next question I mean this is probably maybe one of the first questions I should have asked but cannabis what does that entail like is that hemp is that you know it, like what does it actually encompass? In Canada, so that that's an excellent question because it's it's not the same in Canada as it is in the U.S. and that leads to a lot of confusion. So so effectively, 
cannabis is is defined extremely broadly and so not only is it most parts of the cannabis plant not all of it so there's exceptions for things like the stems and the roots and things that don't have any um, or not a lot of cannabis or cannabinoids or can be used as propagating material but it also includes just about every cannabinoid regardless of source if it's identical to the cannabinoids that are found in a cannabis plant and so and, and hemp is effectively a cannabis plant that's been proved out uh, and have, has 0.3% or less of THC in it. Um, typically, there, it was for the longest time grown in Canada for uh, the derivative products, so like hemp seed oil and, and, and stalks and fiber and things like that. And so it was actually kind of interesting when this all, when this all happened and people were looking at to hemp as, as a potential solution of, of cheap CBD and other cannabinoids. You can't just go and... and bring any kind of varietal of hemp or cultivar of hemp into Canada and grow that if you want. You actually have to get the approval of the Department of Agriculture. And most of the ones that are approved cultivars are are approved, or I guess they're, they're, they've been developed in such a way that they are seed heavy and, and stock rich, right? Because it was it was the seed oil and the and the stocks that were, were that was used in food products and cosmetics. And then there was the 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 stocks were used in fiber, whereas you really want the flowers if you're you're doing it for for cannabis production. So it's it's been slower on the hemp side of things, um, but that's just because it's going to take a few years to get the the necessary cultivars approved. I was so curious about that because there's always been sort of hemp products, all like you know, like skincare and like in everything in fabrics and. Yeah, so, um, so a lot of that. So the stuff in the fabrics will be actually like fiber from the stalks in in a lot of cases, and then what's what's referenced is um, the the what usually when when products say that they have hemp products in them, it's actually hemp seed oil, which is a derivative product versus the actual cannabinoids from from the hemp product itself. Um. Okay. So. Turning to the kind the pandemic, you know, one of the big sort of buzzwords in the beginning of the pandemic was force majeure. And as soon as the pandemic hit, there were articles upon articles um, about force majeure clauses and how to enforce them. How have people dealt with force majeure related disputes in the cannabis space? That is a very complicated question. <laughs> Uh, it, it really depends on the circumstances and whether there was a plan for uh, a continued relationship following it. I think most, there was some litigation over it, but I think most people used it as as leverage to try and renegotiate their existing agreements. And for those of you who don't know, force majeure uh, is provision in an agreement, which effectively allows the suspension of obligations or the performances, performance of responsibilities that are affected by kind of acts of God or, or other things of that nature. So like floods and fires and, and, political events or terrorist activities or things of that nature where neither party has any control over and, and generally affects society at large. And some, you don't necessarily have a right to suspend activities unless you have one of those provisions in your agreements. And so it, it led to a lot of people actually examining, because that's one of the ones that's considered boilerplate a lot of the time. And people just kind of gloss over it and say, yeah, it's there or not, it's not there. And people started actually reading these and be like, well, is a pandemic covered? Is an epidemic covered? What's the difference between the two? Right. And, and just trying to figuring out what that was. And so we're starting to see a lot more specific um, provisions coming out. And then on this, this other side of that, it's we saw people specifically carving out um, COVID from or COVID and a COVID response from these conditions, because if you're entering into an agreement during the restrictions, 
that shouldn't be a, unless they get significantly worse, that shouldn't be a reason to not perform your obligations because you entered into that understanding what they were at the current time. And so I, I think the short answer is, is it was used by a big stick for, by a lot of people to kind of renegotiate their agreements on the other side of things that really led to kind of a, a redrafting and uh, a thoughtful or a, a considerate analysis of, of what the intent of these were and, and what they should look like going and on a sort of more um, macro scale, um, how has COVID affected the market? Like, have you seen sort of a lot of insolvencies over the last year? Um, anything like that? There have been. Um, I, I think the, the challenge, I think it, it didn't necessarily create a ton. I, I think it exacerbated a lot of people who are already in, in financial trouble. And that's not to say that it didn't make the financial situation worse for a lot of people. But I, I think for the people that, I, the, that, that I think it was just that extra straw that broke the camel's back in a lot of cases where they might have spent all this money and then all of a sudden retail sales were shut down and they, they couldn't actually sell their product or they couldn't sell enough going forward. And so that that was a real challenge for some people. But it cert we certainly saw a string of insolvencies beforehand. Um, and we certainly, it definitely continued, but I think actually from, from my experience, uh, it, it was less than everybody thought there was going to be. As I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's still a lot of questions in terms of regulation and going forward, um, you know, but what are the sort of main questions that governments, both federally and provincially, are, are attempting to tackle right now, COVID aside? Yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> That's a good question. And I, I don't actually know the answer to that. I think there are like each province is going to have its own priorities. Um, the there are different levels of, of kind of prioritization. I think consumption in some places is a bigger um, issue than other places. I think there are some jurisdictions like Ontario that are really focused right now on just making since they pivoted on, on retail going from a public to a private they're really just focused on getting stores kind of up and open and, and focusing on that and, and working on building out their supply chain because they're going from essentially 50 stores a year ago to probably well over a thousand. And that requires a huge amount of coordination, not just on the licensing front, but just on the, on the supply chain side of things as well. Um, and that unfortunately brings us to the end of our time, actually, Chris. So um, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been really interesting to talk about. Oh, great. Well, again, thanks for having me. And it was, uh, it was a pleasure to speak to you. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.